Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. dimension beyond that which is known to man it is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity it is the middle ground between light and shadow between science and superstition and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge this is the dimension of imagination it is an area which we call the twilight zone Precisely 6.43 p.m. on Maple Street. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and once again, I'm joined by my co-host, ADZ. Eric, how you doing today? Doing well. Greetings from the Fifth Dimension. Glad to be back in here with you guys today. Episode 22 already of the Twilight Zone series, we will be talking about the monsters are due on Maple Street. Um, I know this is one of the most, um, I don't want to say controversial episodes, but it has a lot in it. Um, And we're going to just barely scrape the surface, I'm sure, within the short amount of time that we'll be discussing this. But before we get started, Eric and I have both went deep into the fifth dimension because now we have books, (laughs) we have encyclopedias, we are going deep into this deeper than we have on any episode so far because we just keep finding more and more information and we just want to provide that to the listeners so i hope you guys enjoy this one because we've been working really hard on this episode so eric take it away yes sir the the monsters are due on maple street the twilight zone episode number 22 um it was directed by ronald winston and written, of course, by Rod Serling. And the original air date was March the 4th, 1960. And I don't have any uh, musical credits for this episode, but I did add one line item. And that is the total production costs for this particular episode was $56,888 for this particular episode. Jimbo, did you have something... Actually, the uh, original music score was composed by Reen Garigunik, and it was conducted oh. by Lud Gluskin. Um, okay, that, thank you very much. Not only that, but when you go back to the director, uh, Juan Winston, I don't think that we have covered an episode that he has done in the Twilight Zone thus far. I think this is his first one that I can remember. Yeah, I can't recall uh, seeing his name pop up either uh, to this point. Okay, Jimbo, do you want to go ahead and uh, take the cast? Hey, did you give the release date? 
The yes, I did. The release okay. date. Uh, I'll just tell again. It's uh, March fourth, nineteen sixty, was the release date for this particular episode. All right. So, um, since some of our research has come about, we have actually found um, some uh, figures, money, monetary figures for what the actors were paid. So, as I go through this uh, list of actors, I will give you uh, the, the actor, the character they played, what other things they have been in, and how much they got paid for this episode. So, here we go. Uh, first off, we have. Claude Aikens, um, he plays Steve Brand. He was in Battle of the Planet of the Apes. Um, he played Aldo. And he was in Rio Bravo as Joe uh, Burdett. Um, and he was uh, given $500 for his role in this episode. Uh, then you had Barry Atwater. Um, he played Les Goodman. Um, he is famous for Star Trek, the original Star Trek, where he played Serac. Uh, Jack Weston, Charlie Farnsworth, um, he was in Dirty Dancing as Max Kellerman, and he was paid the most out of everyone with $850. Uh, Burt Metcalf uh, played Don Martin, and he was the producer of MASH, the TV show, and he was paid $500 as well. You had Amzy Strickland, she was the nameless woman. Uh, but she was in Pretty Woman as a Matron, and she was also in probably one of Eric's favorites, Stock Hollywood with Michael J. Fox as Violet, uh, and she was paid $500. Doc then Hollywood had, was a good movie. <laughs> and then you had uh, Annie Barton, or Ann Barton. She played Mrs. Brand. She was in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, where she played Cora Hudson. Again, $500. Then you had Jan Hadslick, who played Tommy. Um, and you know what? The interesting thing about Tommy is this episode and only one other acting a credit to his name, and that was in Auntie Mammy, uh, where he played Patrick um, Patrick Dennis, uh, and he was also paid $500. Um, what I thought was pretty cool about this is he went on to be a trial lawyer, a successful trial lawyer, after uh, he quit acting to, to focus on that. Did you have really? something right? huh. No, I just uh, when you're talking about Tommy, you're talking about Jan Hans, Hansdick yeah. or Hansick. That's who became the trial lawyer. I believe so. Oh wow! Um, it's it's important to note too. Like, I'm just going to throw this out there. We didn't do these numbers to adjust for inflation like you normally do with uh, your regular movie sets, but um, just from reading. The average American salary at this time in 1960, Jimbo and I were talking about this off the air, was like between three and five thousand dollars. So these particular actors uh, getting, you know, five hundred dollars, eight hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, that was a huge sum of money to do one episode, and then even the total production costs. And we put that sort of in, uh, sort of put that in perspective uh, to what the average American was making. Um, $56,000 for one episode is a ton of money. And I, that's interesting. If we could go back maybe in later episodes and we could, you know, adjust that for inflation, uh, that would be something to check out. It's It kind of leads you to understand why they kind of went the cheap route on some of the episodes in season two and they went to videotape rather than uh, film because it was so expensive to produce. And I, I think they gradually got more and more expensive uh, as time went on, but that that was just something I wanted to throw out there. But well, well, not only that, but you got to remember this is a television show. They they usually only usually had one day of rehearsing and then maybe three days of shooting. So they're getting paid that five hundred dollars or eight hundred fifty dollars for four days of work. Okay, so right, it's pretty good. Um, Still pretty good, yeah. You had uh, Mary Gregory played Sally. She was in uh, Yours, Mine, and Ours, where she played Sister Mary Alice. You had Jason Johnson, who was the, an old man. He got paid $500. Uh, Leah Wagner played Mrs. Goodman. Uh, Joan Sudlow, I <coughs> uh, didn't see who she played. Uh, ben Irway played Pete Van Horn. Uh, he was in The Bishop's Wife, where he played Mr. Perry. And that The Bishop's Wife was the 1947 Cary Grant movie. Um, then you had Sheldon Allman, who was the first alien. And you had Bill Walsh uh, was the second alien. All the other uh, actors that I mentioned that I didn't give a thing, for, uh, a monetary value for, they were paid from $75 to $100 per day. 
So even the lowest one is making, if they went four days, is making $300. Um, so, I mean, it's still pretty good even for just being extra on the set of a television show. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's not bad. So, all right, Eric, let's take it away. All right. Got a lot of um, a lot of cast members in this particular episode uh, in direct opposition to the last episode where there was only like four or five people in the whole episode. There are lots of extras in this episode. Um, so the first scene, just jumping right into the episode here, that we get is we uh, pan down to the Maple Street on the street sign. And there are some really picky people online. Uh, I saw one comment that said, the Maple Street should be facing the street, not facing the camera. The Maple Street sign. <laughs> because all street signs... Face the, uh, you know, face the street and not the camera, but it's like, okay, well, they probably were doing that for a reason because it makes the camera shot easier and they're trying to focus on this Maple Street, and this which will be the, the subject the, of our episode. Twilight Zone, it could be different in the Twilight Zone, in the fifth dimension. <laughs> it, it very well could be. And uh, we hear Rod Serling's narration uh, very early on into this episode. And uh, shortly after a mysterious flash of light hovers over Maple Street, Late one afternoon, the power goes out. The appliances, power tools, and radios, and even automobiles. All right, let me stop right here. So we Early on, if you're just watching this episode for the first time, as maybe some of our listeners are, and even the people in the episode, it seems like it might just be like an electrical failure at first. But then we find out later, obviously, that, you know, the... The aliens have shut off all of their appliances. But one thing that stuck out to me right away, the first time that I saw the episode, because I thought it was just like a power outage that was occurred, you know, during the course of the opening scenes of the episode. Uh, If we fast forward a little further, the lady says her telephone doesn't work. And that made me think even more because I can remember times when I was a kid where we'd have an electrical storm or a thunderstorm or whatever, and the power would go out at our house. But the telephone, you know, the old landlines, you remember, Jimbo, that time before we had cell phones and <laughs> our parents, in the, the phone was in our house and it was like hung on the wall or whatever. The phone would still work. And the, the lady said, well, my, I'm not getting anybody on my telephone. You, I don't know. Did you pick up on that at all? Because the phone would still, the phone would still work, and I found out why. But let me ask you this question, okay? Uh, Just to play devil's advocate here, with us, um, our power lines were up in the air. Okay. Yeah. I don't. don't Not underground. Any. I don't remember seeing any power lines in the air in this episode. So they could be underground. You know what I mean? Uh, oh, that's a good observation. They could, all, they, they could all be connected to their light and everything. You know what I mean? But yeah. So the, something. So. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That I, only, I hadn't consi- that, considered. considered that, but it, it wouldn't matter because things are happening for a reason, um, and it could be no matter what they tried to do, nothing was going to work. If the, yeah, if, and that's if they went to the kitchen and got a knife and tried to cut, maybe it wouldn't cut either. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I came to to find out the farther you go along in the episode. But I just remember like the first time watching, I was like, well, you know, because they they talk about sunspots and meteor and even their portable radio didn't work. And that was how they tried to. Yeah, they were trying to because a hand radio would have batteries. And that's what they tried to explain the meteor in the way that, well, you know, sunspots can cause all kinds of radio wave interference because I think they thought it was. I only bring that up because I think the people in the episode, you know, one of their uh, explanations early on was, well, it's just a power failure. I mean, that's the whole reason why they want to go downtown is to to make sure that, you know, there isn't something wrong with the power or something hasn't happened. But they're really kind of confused, too, because some of the things that aren't working should work, you know, uh, even without electricity. So that's right. kind of why I brought that point. Right. Up. But do you, do you remember though, it's been a couple years ago, but when there was supposedly, you know, the sun was having those solar flares and they warned everybody that, Hey, your electronics may go crazy. Um, oh, okay. some interference. So, um, that's not out of the realm of possibilities. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I, I don't remember that, but yeah, that would make sense. And they do a good job of explaining, you know, you know, the solar flares and all that stuff in the episode. 
But maybe I've belabored that a little bit too long. But I just thought that was interesting that it jumped out at me. Um, and then we have a small, um, still at the beginning here, kind of of the episode. We, we kind of skipped ahead a little bit, but that's okay. Uh, Rod Sterling gives a, a little interlude narration after the first scene. And then the, we come back and we see a guy trying to uh, put a light bulb on his porch light to replace the light bulb and he pulls down on the cord to try to turn it on and it won't come on and then this is where the lady uh, is you know befuddled because she can't get anybody on the telephone and you know then the uh we pan to uh well we come to find out this is uh pete van horn i think and he's got a drill and he's trying to drill some stuff and his drill his electric drill won't work and Steve is talking to his wife and she tells Steve that her stove has stopped working and you know their dinner she can't finish the dinner and then all of the the people on Maple Street sort of gather at this I really kind of in front of Steve's house and you know everybody's having trouble um with all of their appliances really their electrically powered appliances and and so on and so forth and so Steve, Charlie, and I think this is Don, they're kind of all three talking, trying to come up with, you know, any kind of reason why all of this stuff is happening. And, you know, this goes on for a few moments. And then Charlie and Steve, they decide that they're going to walk to the next town and find out what the source of the power failure is. But then enters young Tommy. He comes in and warns all the citizens on Maple Street that the aliens from outer space are responsible. You know, he's a big comic book buff. And he says, uh, you better not go over there, Steve. You, know, you better not leave, Steve, because that's not what they want you to do. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. Steve tries to get in his car and drive down to the next town, but his car won't start. And so then they decide that he and Charlie are just going to walk. Um, because you know, they're confused why his car won't start and so on and so forth. But back to Tommy, Tommy suggests that they need to just remain where they're at because they, he points to the sky, they don't want you to leave. And then he explains that that's basically the plot of every comic book that he's ever read that the, I mean, Tommy's really the source of a lot of this pandemonium because he introduces the idea of the aliens being masked as humans because of the comic books that he's, you know, read thus far. And then the people all around think it's ridiculous. They sort of scold uh, Tommy and his mother for thinking such a thing. But you can sort of see the paranoia sitting, you know, settling on the people's faces that are all around. Uh, they, you know, they kind of look around at one another with a side eye like... Could he be an alien? Could she be an alien? Could this be the plant that these, these aliens have put on Maple Street and they're trying to, to take over? And so, um, you know, like I said, Tommy suggests that some of them might be living in their community. And as the, the hours pass, you know, suspicion keeps growing. And then this is, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, we meet this guy named Les Goodman. And Les Goodman um, has an interesting uh, phenomenon happening. His car won't start at first. Jimbo, did you have some question it's, or something you wanted to interject very, here? It's very interesting because he's not outside yet. You know, right. That, 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 yeah. So automatically your suspicions are going to go, hey, where's this guy? You know, Especially after everything that Tommy has just <clears> said. Where's this guy? Where's his family? You know what I mean? Yeah, Les was not with the crowd of people standing around on the sidewalk. He actually was still in his house. And it, what you just said exactly draws suspicion from his neighbors, too. Later on, they were like, well, where were you at? Because everyone else was outside, you know. And they go, well, you weren't even outside when this event happened, when the uh, the meteor passed over and you were inside your house. That You know, why were you inside? And you didn't even come out to see what was wrong. And so, quickly, Les becomes the quote-unquote scapegoat, and they sort of start attacking him. At first, Les, you know, he's, his car won't start. And then, all of a sudden, as he walks away from it, it starts on its own, like, out of, you know, out of the blue. And so, that perplexes not only Les, but 
the the crowd. Well, really, it's a, starting to become a mob at this point. And they are just like, oh, that's odd. Why would your car start and everyone else's car won't start? And so then they sort of move from the sidewalk on across the street in front of Les's house. And they are just peppering him with questions. And even Steve is kind of like the level-headed guy. He's kind of maybe like the neighborhood leader. And he's kind of trying to keep everybody in check and, you know, trying to keep them from going off the deep end and Les is you know he's coming back with I don't know why it's doing this I have no explanation I'm just as confused as you are and then in the middle of the conversation his car stops and then I think he goes back up to his porch and then the car starts again without uh, him doing anything and they're really closing in on him and, yeah, but you there's, know, there's also this point where this lady says, hey, let me tell you something. Uh, you know, sometimes oh, yeah, that's late a good at point. night, I can't sleep. And I've came out to the front porch uh, at night, and I look out, and I see Les out here just standing in the middle of the yard looking up into the sky. I mean, right now, it's not looking good for Les at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, no, everything. No, nope, it's the, not. The, the cards are stacked against Les at this point. Uh, so that's when everybody's like, oh, well, he's an oddball. Why would you do that? Why would you be out there looking at the sky? Blah, 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 you know? So now Tommy's, uh, Tommy's, I guess, not premonition, but Tommy's saying from earlier about the comic books and everything, everybody's taking it to heart now, and now everybody's perceiving everything that he said was true, and now they're putting two and two together and trying to figure out why Les did this. Yeah, unless he he gives his explanation he says you know you guys i've lived with you for five years you've seen me every day and he says the reason why i'm up at night and looking up at the stars is i have insomnia you know i like i can't sleep so i go outside and i try to get some fresh air and he's like is that a crime like why are you guys descending on me like you're gonna you know put me on the hangman's noose because uh you know i like to look at the stars there's nothing criminal about but you can just see the suspicion in people's mind and it just care they just get carried away with it and they go after less for a short period of time and well, then like, uh at nighttime now they're all just sitting around his house now okay they've got people his neighbor uh what's the one uh, charlie is sitting next to him you know he's drinking a beer sitting on the chair lawn chair right next i mean right by the bushes <laughs> You've got everybody in the street. They're all just sitting there staring at him, you know what I mean? And that's when I think uh, is Steve comes up to him. He's like, look, if anybody comes any closer, I will defend my land. You know, I, nobody kept steps on my porch. But to yeah. me, I wrote, I wrote down, I said, uh, now that everybody's sitting here, well, I was just staring at him. I said, this is the definition of a neighborhood watch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And Charlie is the epitome of that, really, because, you know, as night falls, the scene changes and Charlie, like you just mentioned earlier, Jimbo, he's on like a stool or something. And he is literally right out in the middle of his yard. And his wife brings him something to drink and a sweater. And he's actually, he's Les's next door neighbor. And, you know, he's just focused in on Les. And um, as we progress further through the episode, um, Charlie becomes the point of suspicion, right? Because you remember, Jimbo, the lights in Charlie's house come on and off. But not uh, so, not that's a little so bit fast. Not so fast, ADZ. You're forgetting the next person of interest is actually Steve, because the oh, lady, okay. while they're while they're in the yard, um, the one lady says, "Well, she's like, um, oh, the ham radio, yeah, yeah, yeah." She said, "Well, Steve, you know, your wife's been talking." And he's like, yeah, well, what has she been saying? Go ahead. I have nothing to hide. He's like, well, you know, you spend hours in your basement working on some sort of radio that no one has ever seen. He's like, and you won't let anybody see. He's like, he's like, uh, well, I think we should all just go over there and look. And he's like, no, nobody's coming into my house. So now you don't know who he's communicating with on this radio. Um, you don't, he won't let anybody go in and see it. So now you're, you're like, well, maybe Les wasn't crazy. Maybe it is Steve. You know what I mean? Because... It kind of like a, a, a trying to cover his own tracks by blaming somebody else, and so yeah. this is where they're you know they're all just um, starting to go at it. You know what I mean? And um, this is when you see something walking up the uh, walking up the road, and yeah, Tommy goes, "It's the monster! It's the monster! It's the monster!" And I blame so, Tommy. I blame Tommy for everything that happens in this episode because he gets. Well, 
We'll get there. Pete Van Horn killed. Let's go ahead. This is so so. One guy runs off and gets a shotgun. And you know what I mean? And, and you got Steve and you got Charlie sitting there um, on the street. They're like, oh, he's coming to some monster. And the, and the one guy brings out the gun. He's like, well, just give it here. I'm not going to let anybody. Charlie grabs it from him. And as he's walking, you see the hammer hanging on his side. And you know this is Pete that had left earlier to go uh, just the next neighborhood over and make sure they had electricity and everything. And then you see Charlie fire that shot, man, and he just drops. <laughs> you know what I mean? So everybody runs over there and he's like, look, look, we didn't know who it was. It was dark. You know, I, I, I was protecting us. Um, they're like, well, yeah. you're a murderer now. And then this is the point where I think Charlie's lights start coming on in his house. And he's like, look, guys, it, it's, it's not me. It's not me. And, well, they, you know, his lights start flipping. And then they all pick up stones and yeah. they start throwing them at, at, at his house, you know. And his, you could take it away from here. I just, sorry, I got on a little tangent there. I just thought it was No, right. no, no. I thought we needed to bring, to bring in that uh, even the, the main, I, I would call him a good guy, the main guy was even being blamed at one point. Yeah, uh, Steve, I mean, every that's kind of a theme of the episode is, you, you know, the people are constantly looking for a scapegoat and it changes from person to person to person. When it doesn't fit the narrative or when someone is discarded, they they move on to another scapegoat. They try to blame someone else for the happenings. That, 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 that's, yeah, a deep, could, that's a deep rabbit trail, man. If we went down that yeah. one, we could be here all day discussing that. Yeah, <laughs> that Political, definitely super, super relevant. Yeah, super <laughs> relevant for what is happening in modern times today. But this ultimately turns into a crazy massacre, really, like a neighborhood massacre. Right. And you kind of, I just wanted to make the point that you kind of forget about Pete Van Horn leaving very early in the episode to go to the other town or Floral Street or whatever, the next street over. And, you know, he well, comes back only to be when killed. When they're throwing the rocks at Charlie, you know, it breaks his light or something, and he comes up and his, I don't know if he got hit by the rock or if it was the glass falling from his, his uh, porch light, but his, he's now bleeding from his forehead. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And then he's like, it's not me, guys. It's not me or whatever. Well, then you see somebody else's lights flicker on. And they're like, oh, it's it's the Johnsons or whatever. And then as they're running there, and they're like, oh, actually, they blame Tommy. And they're like, it's all Tommy's fault. So Tommy, and the mom's like, look, it's not Tommy. He's been right here with us the whole time or whatever. And so that's yeah, Tommy. So they all start running after Tommy. Tommy's booking it out of there, you know, with his mom. And then, the, then all of a sudden, as he's running away, another light flickers on. They're like, "No, no, no, it's the Johnsons." And then, like, and then another light flickers. "No, no, no, it's Charlie." No, no, no. And it's just going on. All these lights are flickering. Everybody's yelling at everybody. You see guns getting grabbed off the mantles. You see stones being picked up. It's just yeah. pure chaos at this point. Pure chaos. I tend to agree. I, I kind of blame Tommy for this whole thing because he plants the seeds of uh, these nefarious aliens, but. You can't blame like a thirteen-year-old kid. You can't attack him and go up, run after him. I mean, that, uh, yeah, it just turns into a complete uh, mess until we come to the end of the episode and we realize really who is at the switchboard of all of these happenings, and it is who is it, Jimbo? It is actually two aliens standing back above, uh, looking down at them, uh, and one alien says. Uh, the pattern's always the same, <laughs> you know. And right. uh, the other one, alien's like, yeah, you, you, the, you know, you give them, uh, take away a, l- a little bit of something that they like, and they they pick out the most dangerous person, and it's themselves. Yeah, I think I have the line that says one being explains to the other that if they turn off the power and throw the humans into darkness for a short while, they will find their own worst enemy themselves. And so, really, this is a. Really, it's it's kind of touching on the human condition, really, and how human beings are their own worst enemies. And you know, well, not only that, but the alien the alien says, "Hey, we're just going to go to neighborhood, to neighborhood, to neighborhood, and they're going to destroy themselves. We won't even have to do anything except flip flip a switch, maybe turn a light off." Yeah, and so that's so, how it ends. You see, you see the uh, you see the aliens getting their little spacecraft, uh, and it and it floats away while Rod Sterling's giving his closing uh, remarks. So uh, let's go ahead and talk. I'll talk a little bit about some stuff I found. Um, one thing is the entire episode was filmed on the New England Street on Lot 2 at MGM. Um, there was some extra uh, prop rentals uh, that cost them a little bit of money. Uh, one was a vending bike and a power motor, which cost uh, Cayuga $50. Uh, 
Um, the set designs included for the Maple Street was the sign for the signpost, landscapes, automobiles, and other props cost a total of $750. The exterior of the spaceship was filmed on the evening of the third day, electronic instruments, garden tools, and the illusions of the scenic view of Maple Street and the inhabitants in a panic cost $1,000. Yes. I just got uh, one little bit of trivia here. Um Sorry to interrupt, but it has to do with the ending of the episode. I guess there was a, an adapted script into a short story for Stories from the Twilight Zone, and, and it was uh, published by Bantam Books, and Serling actually altered the ending a little bit. He made yeah, one noticeable cool. change at the conclusion. He described how the sunrise, so this would be the next day in the episode, the sunrise revealed the remains of dead bodies draped about the streets and porches uh, and how hours later the new residents had arrived to move in with two heads for each new resident. The script itself has become a textbook, uh, the textbook standard having been reprinted in a number of scholastic books over the years so children of various ages could be exposed to the moral uh, Serling emphasized. And that was right. from Unlocking a Television Classic uh, uh, episode. And not only that, but something um, I, I think I have it in here towards the end is that the actually the um, there's a reoccurring product placement which was all Ford vehicles in this. So there was the three yeah. of those. One was the uh, 1959 Ford sedan, and another one was the 1959 Ford station wagon. The station wagon was the exact same one the mechanic was working on in Walking Distance. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really cool. I like how they reuse their props. Um, it's like Hitchcock did that a lot too, from his movies to his television show, or vice versa. Uh, but Sterling intended to use the following for the trailer, but it was considered too lengthy and needed to be trimmed down. So it was going to say, you know, how at the end of each episode he gets on there next week on the Twilight Zone, um, he says, uh, "Next week on the Twilight Zone, we put you in a glider on a warm summer evening, front porch, tree-lined street, typical small town." We let you look at the ice cream salesman. Hey, by the way, whatever happened to the ice cream salesman at the beginning of this episode? He was pushing the ice cream cart, remember? Yeah, he knew, he knew to get out of town. He got out of Dodge <laughs> he made it quick. To the next block. Uh, <laughs> listen to kids laugh and play. Listen to housewives gossip over porch railings. And then, and then we will pull the rug out from under your feet and we throw a nightmare at you that we venture to say will not be easily set aside. Next week, Claude Atkins, Jack... Uh, Jack Weston and Barry Atwater are your neighbors just uh, at the moment when the monsters are due on Maple Street. Don't chicken out. See you next week. Just one other thing um, to add to just by way of trivia. The premise of power shutting off uh, all machinery to make a point was also explored in The Day That the Earth Stood Still, 1951. Have you seen that movie? Love the it. Day That the Earth Stood Still. Did you? I haven't seen it. I didn't uh, like that's one re- I definitely want to... Like- I wasn't a big fan of the remake with Keanu Reeves a few years ago. Okay, yeah, um, that's definitely one I want to check out sometime. But this 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 episode had a lot um, of professors get involved too, uh, because they seen what Rod Sterling was doing about prejudice and and just how um, people interact with each other. That actually people wrote in and kept writing in to get scripts to get the actual film sent to them, uh, the 16 mm-hmm. movie film, because they were going to teach this. And um, where it said, he uh, certainly finally had to say, look, he's like, we've had so many requests for the monsters are due on Maple Street and found out along the way that there were more requests than there were films. Uh, so they've just taken a blanket position of films, of no more films to anyone. And I thought that was really interesting that they had so many people writing in and so many people wanting a copy of this so they they could teach perspectives um one guy wrote in he's like look you know i loved it uh, everything about it he's like but please he's like this this the screwball shot of the <laughs> the same ufo being used from forbidden planet or whatever you know it's terrible and sterling defended it saying look well i don't think the, the camera on it was exceptionally good i cannot defend the mgm saucer unfortunately with budget problems you have to fall back on standard overworked devices too often so uh, there's that yeah go ahead yeah just another tidbit the uniforms you just mentioned the forbidden planet with the the flying saucer the uniforms that were worn by the aliens on their spaceship ramp and the shot of the flying spaceship where yeah they were originally used in forbidden forbidden excuse me planet 1956 now have you seen forbidden planet of course have you Oh, no. Wow. I need, I'm behind. I need to you're catch up a, on these. No, you're not a big sci-fi guy, though, but we're going to get you there eventually. Yeah. Um, 
Do you have the notes on the 2003, oh, 2003 remake? Do you have the notes on that? Oh, well, yeah, probably somewhere. But uh, uh, let me finish this real quick. Um, yeah. There was a book, um, what was it, 1958, titled The Year When Stardust Fell, which was written by Raymond F. Jones and published by John C. Winston Company. Uh, a viewer brought this to Sterling's attention saying, you know, this is almost exactly like your your, your series here. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and Sterling's like, look, he confessed. He's like, I'm not aware of this book and, 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 and I want a copy uh, to check his contents and settle his curiosity. You know what I mean? Um, so I thought that was very well interesting, too, that he actually um, he wanted to give credit where credit was due. You know what I mean? Because, you know, yeah. most most of the times when you open a book, it says, hey, any any coincidences to people pure or imaginary is purely coincidental um and i yeah. don't think sterling would do that on purpose i could be wrong but i just don't i just don't think he would um there's also a radio dramatization of this um i f- actually found it on youtube before we started recording um it was pr- uh produced in the mid 2000s with frank john hughes playing steve rand and was included in the twilight zone uh, radio dramas collection volume two also um the same location for Maple Street was later used as the abandoned town in the Twilight Zone stopover in a quiet town in 1964. Um, let me see. You got anything else to throw in while I'm rolling through these? Just, real quick? just uh, that I have. I've listened to the the radio ad- adaptations too, a couple of them, and there's uh, like some pretty notable actors. It's not just this episode. There are a couple episodes that I saw on like Apple iTunes or something. And like Jason Alexander from Seinfeld plays a part. I don't remember what episode he did, but yeah, uh, that might be something for all you Twilight, the Twilight Zone fans out there, right? To and check this, out this um, this episode has some very interesting musical uh, attributes. I don't want to say attributes, but people have used this. Like, uh, it inspired the title of the song "Sunspots in the House of the Late Scapegoat." <laughs> I was like, I've never heard it. Did you listen to it? Yeah, just like the band Skinny, whatever they were, it, I think it's by they're... indie rock uh, band Modest Mouse. <laughs> so, and then that's why I was say Skinny Pup, uh, Skinny Puppy uh, samples from the episode not good by the Canadian industrial music band Skinny Puppy for their song Not Good Monster Radio Man. Hard <laughs> <Anyway>. pass. <Harry. laughs> hey, I'm not going to say that to our Canadian listeners. I like Skinny Puppy. I'm just no, that's not a commentary on Canadians. It's a commentary on the band that they produced. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric, give me your theories. Give me your, your love. Hey, give me your thoughts on this episode. Real well, quick, the last little bit of trivia that I have. The 2003 remake of this episode was produced in 2002, the revival of The Twilight Zone, but it was renamed The Monsters Are On Maple Street. Uh, Serling received the credit. It starred Andrew McCarthy, a great 80s actor. I got up to the 80s info. (laughs) And Will Marshall as Titus Welliver. The difference between the two uh, 1960 episodes versus the 2003 episode, it was the the remake was more about the fear of terrorism rather than aliens. And when the power surge happens... Uh, in the remake, it caused it was caused not by the aliens, but instead by the government, specifically the United States Army, exper- experimenting on how small towns react to the fear of terrorism. In the end, the neighborhood takes out its anger and frustration on a family who never left their house after the power surge occurred, uh, thinking that they caused it. And since they still have their power in their house, they figure that they caused it. The residents all failed to test they all fail the test miserably as they do with all other inhabitants of the other street that they tested. And the opening and closing narration is provided by Forrest Whitaker. So that might be something for some of you fans to check out. I haven't seen it, but uh, I don't know how good the remake is uh, or not. I can't really comment on it, but that was interesting that they replaced the aliens with the government and the United States army. I thought that might be an interesting twist to check out. Why don't you give me, Jimbo, your your thoughts on the episode? Okay, because while I get while I gather my thoughts. Well, because once once I blow the lid off this, you're gonna be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never even thought of that. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> We're gonna go back to little boy Tommy. Do you remember what Tommy says that the aliens did? Exactly. What did he do? What did he say that the aliens did? 
what the aliens did exactly. I don't remember the okay. the line exactly. You'll have he to said, give it you know, to me. They 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 brought a family down uh, to look like humans, and they had two children. Okay, okay. Uh, or two kids. Um, so, and Tommy's the only one I think that saw the actual object in the in the air. Right? Did he say he saw the object? Uh, I thought Steve and Don were all looking up at the object as well. They were, but a all they shot. saw, all they saw was a flash of light, and hear they heard. You know, what I mean, okay, whatever. They, okay. they never actually saw anything. I mean, okay, if you where notice, are you going they with had this? That same, that same sort of uh, shadow effect, like uh, the Purple Testament. You know, the the everybody, everybody that actually saw it. As what I was thinking, man, these are the ones that are going to go crazy because you see the light on their face and all that. And I thought maybe that was where right. the mind control them. And maybe that's yeah. why Les was like, what are you guys doing? Because I wasn't outside. That's why I wasn't as crazy as you guys. You know, that's why he's like, I don't know what's going on. Him and his wife are like, we don't know what's going on. Maybe he really did know what's going on because he wasn't outside to get the uh, the brainwash uh, light. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. So, so if we take Tommy's uh, thing about two kids, okay, did Les have any kids? Uh, I don't believe the episode says whether he had kids or not. Exactly. It's Who, assumed that he probably didn't. Who's the only kid in the episode? Well, there's some kids that gather around the ice cream stand the at the beginning. But, in the episode that you see. But Tommy, Tommy is Tommy is the only kid that has any uh, dialogue. He's the only kid you see. I don't believe you see any other kids in the thing because I was counting. I counted mm. fourteen people. I counted 14 okay. people, and they were all adults. Okay. Uh, especially when the lights went out or they were at the first mob thing. You know what I mean? Um, as okay. far as I could tell. And even if there was, there might have been one more, which would put one and one is two, which is what the aliens said, uh, what Tommy said that the aliens would use. Okay. Every time something happens, Tommy's involved. Tommy is responsible. I think Tommy is one of the alien implants. Um, uh, I uh, would tend to agree with you there. Right. So um, I think I think that Tommy is one of the aliens. I, I don't think it's that far fetched to say that he is, um, because everything that he does, um, because you can go like he he says like don't leave the town, don't leave the town. Um, you don't want to go out there. You don't want to go out there. He's warning them, hey, don't leave the town because I have this plot set up. You know what I mean? Yeah, and then and then um, you can even go back to um, the next thing, where uh, the next major thing is is when uh, was it Pete Van Horn or whatever his name is uh, Pete Pete right what's his name um, It's Pete Van Horn yep and he's going it's a monster it's a monster it's a monster well guess what it wasn't the monster it's Tommy saying it's a monster nobody took exactly. the time to look at it nobody. Even if it was a monster and you have a gun, why do you have to shoot 400 yards away? Why can't you go up and say... Well, you, they didn't even call out to the person. They didn't even say, hey, who's there? You know what I mean? You would think the small-knit community would, would, would say, hey, who's there? And, and, and they're so caught up in everything, they don't even realize that one of their guys had left earlier to go check another neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I blame Tommy. Um, I blame Tommy for the whole thing. I, I see where you're going I, with this. I think yeah. it's... And, 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 which is quite interesting because we talked a little bit earlier, um, and, and I'll bring this up to you, is uh, when we were kids and we did something bad, um, we would get spanked. I mean, you know, I mean, or we yep. would get grounded. Um, yep. We both have kids now. Uh, mine are a little older. When you, um, the way the times have been, the worst way that you can harm them is to take away one of their electronics, whether it be their cell phone, whether it be their video games, whether it be TV, whether it be their laptop, whether it be their computer. You think it's the end of the world. The monsters really come to my house when, when I do something like that. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. and then, you know, my favorite was, well, well, can I do something to earn it back? You know what I mean? Please, yeah. they let me earn it back. <laughs> um, but I think yep, that that's... this episode is far deeper than what was intended. Um, I, I think the elements of this episode still are true to this day. I still think Sterling was way ahead of his time uh, in seeing this stuff. Um, 
anything you could take it like i said earlier political you could take it society you could take it theologically you could take it uh, any way you want and you can spin this and you can talk hours and you could go down each each one of those avenues can lead to something else um but i mean i mean i'm just gonna throw this out there right now you know the whole covid thing with wearing a mask don't wear a mask you see how the lines have been drawn there and how many fights yeah. you've seen um, on YouTube or, or just in the news where one person will stand up in the middle of the store, take off their mask, and start yelling at each other. And, and the other one's like, well, you don't need to wear a mask. And, and it doesn't help that we have a, a leadership saying, uh, don't wear a mask. It doesn't do anything. Oh, now you have to wear a mask. Oh, don't the mask doesn't do anything. Now wear a mask. You know what I mean? Um, just if everybody would be kind to one another and respect to, to each other, then this stuff kind of stuff wouldn't happen. Uh, you know what I mean? And I think society, since humans are generally... Uh, bad in nature um it's just if everybody would just take the little extra time to be kind to one another i think a lot of this stuff would blow over not blow over i mean the world would be a better place yeah um i think you hit you touched on a lot of great points and we could go on and on i i really just my takeaway if I can condense it, it, it really is a commentary on the human condition and prejudice. And that's what Rod Serling was so amazing at was taking a story that seems totally non-related and yet bring in, uh, you know, you mentioned this off the air, Jimbo, and I don't want to steal your thunder, but he really touches on the seven deadly sins in a, some way, form or shape in a lot of his episodes. And it's it's just really a commentary on how how Tommy I go back to Tommy again he's planting the seeds in people's minds of evil some outside force that's and it's it's been said many times that it's easy to control people through fear if you can get someone afraid of something that they they're you know people are afraid for a lot of different reasons and one of the reasons is something they don't understand or something that they can't explain right away they become fearful and it's easy to i mean that's what tommy did he just led him right down the road and it cost pete van horn his life because all he had to do was plant that seed it's the monster it's the monster the monster is going to get us and it cost somebody their life and I, i mean as skillfully and artfully as uh, Rod Serling did this, I mean, he just wrote, I mean, this is a really great, and that's why all of those, I don't know if they were like political science professors, you mentioned it earlier, why they wanted, they were, they wanted so badly a copy of this episode so that they could show it to their prospective students is because, I mean, the message is clear and it, it really gets to the heart of the human condition and what we all do to each other. Um, and it's unfortunate and it's sad, um, but it's true. And again, you, Jimbo, you mentioned theologically. I mean, we could go on for another 40 minutes about um, the theological aspects and really get to the, the heart of why human beings do what they do. And uh, But we won't take the time to do that. But yeah, uh, it was just really skillfully and artfully done. Just a, a really great piece uh, of writing here in this episode. So, Eric, you know I'm going to ask you, where does this fall on your top ten of season one so far? Well, you know, you asked me that last week, and I, I took a few minutes, and uh, I wrote only, down my... Only, only on the ones that we've covered. Well, I I, I didn't do that. I, I took all of season one into well, complete account, because I've seen... But I don't want to know any of those. Just tell me where you put this in your top ten of season one. Don't give me your list. Just tell me where this falls for you. Oh, where this one falls? This yeah. one falls at number eight in number the top eight. ten. You know, I really do and work on my top ten list. <laughs> and I think the top... I can give you my top... No, I can't give you my top five because we haven't covered one of the episodes in my top five. Um, I think but I four of the is. It's really good. Four of the top five are... We've already covered and. Time enough at last. Is that number where one? Is every, where is it? Yeah, that's number one. Where is everybody? The Hitchhiker. The Hitchhiker was sneaky good. And uh, <laughs> Mirror Image was number five. 
Wow, so, considering uh, when we first started talking about Mirror Image, you trashed that thing so hard. I mean, I was like, Eric, it's better than what you say. Nah, man, it's terrible. What do you mean? It's terrible. <laughs> I was like, no, it's not. But after I told yeah. you, once we start discussing things, and you know, your list could change by the time we get done uh, through the end of season one, too. You may have to throw something out and be like, hey, well, okay, this deserves to be in the top ten. This one does it, you know. But they're all good. Especially season one. Yeah. Most of them are good. I think there may be only one I really didn't care for in season one. Um but, um, man. the baseball one, the very, I think it's like the next to last episode, uh, in season one, it's horrible. That's, <laughs> well, the, that's the only, that. you, no, there's another one that I didn't like. No, there's, well, that's the one that sticks out to me as being, uh, one of the only duds, but yeah, that, that list will grow and it will change and, and the slots will move around as we, uh, move along in the in the episodes of this season. And I'm looking up and we are all, we're at 47 minutes. We really took a long time on this episode. Well, when you have more information uh, at your disposal, your episodes generally get longer. You know what I mean? And I, and I like that. Yep. I like how we, we, we continually to grow the podcast, uh, especially the series, um, because the more information we find, we like to share it and we like to collaborate together and say, Hey, did you see this? Hey, did you say, Hey, did you see this book I got? Well, yeah, I just bought it. <laughs> I mean, it's stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so fun definitely time. all good stuff. Yeah. Definitely all good stuff. We wanted well, Eric, to, thanks again for coming on once again. Um, this episode's went way longer, uh, than normal. Um, next week, I think, or next time we release one, we'll be talking about a world of difference. Um, you know, I, I really don't remember. Oh, I know what this one is. This is the one about the guy that uh, does the writing. He's the author, and his life becomes the play or whatever. I don't think you said you finished this one. You turned it off. I didn't. I didn't yeah. finish this one, so I've got some homework so. to do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And Eric, take it away. And cut. do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own. For the children, and the children yet unborn, and the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the twilight zone.